Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, highlights from the 2018 American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, annual meeting. Now, today's program is a collaborative program between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and this is also part one of a two-part series. And we have really uh, wonderful speakers on our program today. And I also want to let you know that we have um, today over 547, so 547 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Nigeria, Santo Domingo, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So I'm really from all over the world, a bit, a bit of a global call. And today's program is supported by Gilead, Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have the best speakers um, on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker um, is Dr. Um, Keith Eaton. Um, and Dr. Eaton is going to be addressing clinical trials and evidence-based care. Now, Dr. Eaton is clinical director of thoracic and head and neck oncology. He's medical director in fusion and pharmacy, medical director quality, safety, and value, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. He's also associate member of Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and associate professor of medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Keith Eden. Thanks for the opportunity to speak today. Uh, today, my colleagues will discuss the latest developments in cancer research as reported in June at ASCO. This is our largest oncology meeting. My talk is meant uh, to set the stage for the presentations you'll hear today, and I'll use a series of questions to cover this topic. So the first question is, is how do cancer doctors know the best way to treat individual patients? First, we have to understand what it is that matters to patients. Typically, we talk about the likelihood of curing the cancer or how much we're able to extend patients' lives. We refer to this as survival. Recently, there's an interest, uh, increased interest in quality of life, which is what it sounds like, the extent that patients are able to maintain their usual activities and be free from cancer or treatment-related symptoms. And how do we know what is effective in achieving these goals? Well, what we do is conduct scientific studies to see if a given intervention has a positive effect on the outcome of interest. These scientific studies are called clinical trials. The collection of all clinical studies is called the scientific evidence. And when possible, doctors should, use, uh, should treat patients according to the best evidence. And this is what we refer to as evidence-based care. And when we can give evidence-based care, this is what we uh, should always be doing. So what is a clinical trial? So this is a research study that involves uh, people, uh, participants uh, such as cancer patients or healthy controls. Most of the trials discussed today will focus on treatment of cancer with new drugs or using known tools in different ways. Other areas uh, for cancer clinical trials involve cancer prevention, cancer screening, and symptom management. Uh, it's important to emphasize that our current standard treatments are based on the results of previous clinical trials. 
how do we bring uh, new treatments to patients? There are many steps involved in the development of new treatments and drugs. The first steps are called preclinical and are conducted in the lab uh, to identify promising drugs. Prior to testing in humans, work is done with animals to understand the potential toxicities and how the drug should be dosed. The first type of clinical trials uh, that I'll talk about today are phase one trials. These are known as first-in-person studies, which may be done in cancer patients or healthy volunteers. The purpose of these trials is to find a safe dose of the drug, determine how it should be given, and to study the effect of the drug on the body, such as toxicities. From these phase one trials, we can get what's referred to as the recommended phase two dose, or uh, the dose that will be studied in future uh, trials. Next, we have phase two, and this is to try to determine whether a given treatment is effective in a specific cancer and to further characterize the potential toxicities. These trials typically involve 30 to 100 persons, and the results of these trials are compared to historical controls typically and do not give a definitive answer about uh, how good this treatment is. Uh, but what can happen is that if it looks good, it's deemed to be promising and then can move on to phase three trials, which are designed to determine whether a new treatment is superior to the standard of care. These typically involve hundreds to thousands of patients. Patients are randomized to two different treatments. Uh, this is the equivalent of a coin toss to determine which therapy is received. received. Um, the purpose of this is to reduce bias, some unintended difference between the groups that may cause a difference. And when we design clinical trials, it should have uh, what's called equipoise. This is a, a fancy word, meaning that the investigator, someone who knew a lot about uh, cancer treatment and the trial, would feel comfortable being randomized either to the standard arm or the new treatment arm. This is what makes it ethical to do this randomization. Even though a treatment may be considered promising, it may not work as planned and have unexpected toxicities. Phase three trials are often double-blinded, meaning that neither the patient nor the physician know if the, the different or added part is uh, actually what's being given to the patient or they're given a placebo, which is an inactive substance. Although placebos are used in cancer trials, this isn't the same as no treatment as it's typically added to a standard treatment. The purpose of all these efforts uh, using randomization, placebo controls, and blinding is to ensure that once a trial is conducted, we can tr trust that the result indicates that the effect we're seeing of benefit is a real one. And successful phase three trials can result in the FDA approving new treatments. So after a treatment is found to be successful in uh, clinical trials, how does it become part of standard? For new drugs, the FDA uh, examines the evidence, determine whether these drugs are approved for use and in what context, specifically what diseases uh, they could be used for. For drugs that are already approved, the FDA may give a new, what's called an indication, or expert panels may include them in their guidelines, and then typically those will be covered by uh, insurance companies. So a question that arises is, are clinical trials right for me or should I participate? The first thing to say is that most clinical trials are, are negative, meaning that the intervention uh, was not superior to the standard of care. Most of the trials you'll hear about today are positive trials, so we do lots of trials. Many of them are negative, but a few of them are positive, and this is how we make progress. Even though a trial is negative, it doesn't mean that a patient doesn't benefit from being in trials. Increasingly, uh, we use what's called target matching, so seeing whether the, the uh, 
where the drug is active against the cancer is present in that cancer, this technique has improved the likelihood of success with the trials. Overall, patient and clinical trials do better than patients that aren't in clinical trials. It's not known exactly why this is. It may be that due to patient selection, these are people that are going to do better, or because we have a more standardized and monitored approach to patients on trials. Why should a person participate? Well, there's the obvious uh, potential to benefit yourself with access to treatments that are otherwise uh, available, but I would also like to stress that there's an opportunity to uh, contribute to our understanding of how to treat cancer and benefit other patients. Um, how, do, how does one participate? Well, first is the challenging task of uh, finding trials, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later. Uh, once a trial has been identified, you should understand the potential risks and benefits, the schedule of treatment, and any uh, costs of participating, if there are any. Typically, this is part of what's known as a consent process involving a careful explanation of the trial, both uh, verbally and in written materials. And then the person participating would then sign papers saying that they uh, agree to participate. Participation is entirely voluntary. Uh, then there's a screening procedure. Uh, basically, there's a list of criteria that you have to have and that you can't have, such as you need a cancer of a certain type and stage. Uh, specific treatments may need to have happened or not have happened. There may be uh, cancer-specific uh, markers that you need. And then things that you can't have, underlying problems with your liver or kidney, some other serious medical condition or another cancer, or just being too ill to participate. So in order to find a clinical trial, one of the best sources can be your treating physician. Um, there is a central uh, way to look for all these at a website called cancer.gov, and you can look up by disease stage, uh, where you are in the country, uh, the different drugs of interest. But this can be very overwhelming, so you can work with your doctor. There are also uh, people on, the, uh, on this site that you can interact with by telephone that will also help you uh, navigate this. And from this, you can get an idea of what's available and if you're likely to be able to participate. Um, so now with this uh, brief introduction, I will turn you over to discussions of the recent data from ASCO. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Eden. That was really outstanding and really set the wonderful stage for today's program. Thank you so much. And our next speaker today is Dr. Julie Grelo. Dr. Grelo is Professor and Director of Breast Medical Oncology. He's Jill Bennett Endowed Professorship in Breast Cancer, University of Washington School of Medicine. She's Director of Breast Medical Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Grelo is going to be addressing breast cancer updates from ASPO, and it's my privilege now and uh, to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grelo. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Uh, I'm pleased to review some of the highlights within breast cancer at ASCO 2018. We all know that breast cancer is increasingly recognized as not just one disease, but lots of subtypes. So I'm going to be talking very briefly about estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, HER2-positive breast cancer, what we call triple-negative breast cancer, where the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 receptor are all negative, as well as BRCA1 and 2-associated breast cancer. I'll also be uh, talking about a few abstracts in early-stage breast cancer and a few in metastatic breast cancer. So let's start with the abstract, the presentation that got the most press at ASCO, and that was a trial called the Taylor X trial. 
it was a trial um, that looked at can we uh, omit chemotherapy in early stage estrogen receptor positive and lymph node negative breast cancer patients and still get excellent outcomes. So uh, up until recently, it was standard of care that most breast cancer patients with early stage breast cancer had chemotherapy recommended or at least strongly considered. But we also knew that about half of all breast cancers diagnosed in the U.S. were hormone receptor positive and HER2 negative and lymph node negative, and most of those patients would do fine just with anti-estrogen therapy and wouldn't have a lot of benefit from chemo. But we couldn't select out which were the, 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 the percentage of patients, which were the patients who didn't need chemotherapy, didn't benefit from it. So this big trial called the TaylorX trial used an assay that we call Oncotype DX or the 21-gene recurrence score assay. This was an assay developed to look at um, predicting risk of recurrence in estrogen receptor positive and lymph node negative early stage breast cancer as well as benefit from chemotherapy. And we had previously shown that if you had a low recurrence score, less than the number 11, that you did just fine with hormone therapy alone. Chemo couldn't possibly benefit because you did so well. Um, we also had previously shown that for a recurrence score greater than 25, that that group really benefited from chemo. So the question was in the group with a recurrence score of 11 to 25, does chemotherapy add, uh, or is it worth the toxicities, or do these patients do well with hormone therapy alone? And to cut to the chase, and this is what all the headlines were about, uh, we showed that for that recurrence score group of 11 to 25, that um, endocrine therapy was equal to chemo plus endocrine therapy. So chemo didn't benefit these patients. You can do this assay, the Oncotype DX, with the tumor block. Um, so we send a piece of tumor off and get the results back after surgery. But the, about two-thirds of patients now, who are that, that's who comprise that recurrence score of 11 to 25 group, probably don't benefit from chemo. Uh, the study did suggest that in young women, women 50 or under, who had recurrence scores at the upper end of that range, so for example, a recurrence score of 16 to 25, that maybe they did benefit from chemo. Uh, but for the group as a whole and for older women, if you have a recurrence score, come back after your surgery of 11 to 25. We now feel very comfortable omitting chemotherapy. So moving on uh, to what we would uh, call ovarian suppression in early stage premenopausal breast cancer, we had an update on a couple of trials called the SOFT and TEXT trials. And if you want to look this up, you can find these uh, updated in ASCO 2018 abstract number 503. These were trials looking at in young premenopausal women who have functioning ovaries, does suppressing the ovaries for five years uh, in addition to giving either tamoxifen or another endocrine therapy in a category we call aromatase inhibitors, does suppressing the ovaries add benefit? And then if you do suppress the ovaries in young women with early stage estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, is one class of drugs, the tamoxifen, uh, better or worse than the other, the aromatase inhibitors? And um, 
we had seen results of these trials before um, that had suggested some benefit in the highest risk patients to being aggressive and in addition uh, to giving just a pill to adding ovarian suppression and to giving one of these postmenopausal aromatase inhibitors. Um, but what we saw now was a longer-term follow-up at eight years, and it really pretty much locked in that if at women who had ER-positive breast cancer who were at high risk of recurrence. So the youngest women, those with multiple positive lymph nodes, those with larger tumors or higher grade, more aggressive tumors, that suppressing ovarian function and giving the aromatase inhibitor uh, postmenopausal hormones as opposed to just tamoxifen alone had a better outcome in terms of reducing recurrences outside the breast. So I think we're doing better at defining who might need more aggressive anti-estrogen therapy in the premenopausal setting and who might not need it, but we still need some more data here. Also in the area of endocrine therapy, in the metastatic setting, we had an update on some strategies that could overcome resistance to endocrine therapy. And um, in particular, I'll point you to a few abstracts, the late-breaking abstract 1006 and then abstract 1007 and 1008. These were abstracts of new drugs that haven't been approved yet by the FDA in what we call the mTOR, PI3 kinase, and AKT pathway. Um, uh, Tocilisib, which is a PI3 kinase inhibitor, was added to endocrine therapy in a trial called the Sandpiper trial in metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. And although it showed an improvement in how long the tumors went before they started uh, growing again and progressing, uh, the toxicity was felt to be not worth it. So this drug actually is not moving forward in development um, because of the toxicity. There were a couple of drugs in the category we call AKT inhibitors, um, uh, Capavastertib and um, and then uh, Ipatastertib, and I can't even pronounce that. As you can see, we've got complicated names. And these are AKT inhibitors that are looking promising for kind of prolonging the benefit of endocrine therapy in metastatic estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. We had an update on the cell cycle inhibitors. We've already had approval of three of these, palbocyclib, which is called Ibrance, ribocyclib, which is called Cascali, and abemocyclib, which is called Verzenio. We already have FDA approval of these in metastatic ER-positive breast cancer in conjunction with endocrine therapy. And at ASCO 2018, we had an update on all three of those drugs in abstracts uh, 1000, 1001, and 1002. And basically, to conclude, all three of those uh, abstracts show that all three of these drugs have meaningful improvements in what we call progression-free survival, meaning how long the disease is kept under control, and that these are pretty tolerable drugs with predictable, manageable side effects, and that the benefits hold up whether you're using it at, at first relapse or later on or whether you give it with uh, fulvestrant, a, a metastatic drug that's an anti-estrogen, or whether you give it with an aromatase inhibitor, and they're beneficial to both premenopausal and postmenopausal women. So moving on, uh, we uh, have five FDA drugs approved with HER2 as a target, and uh, 
we saw one abstract presented looking at an early stage HER2 positive breast cancer, which is about 20% of breast cancer. Could we back off on how much uh, Herceptin we're giving. Typically right now the standard of care is a full year of Herceptin in early stage breast cancer. The Persephone trial, which was ASCO abstract 506, looked at could you give six months instead of 12 months. And this trial did show that the two durations, six months and 12 months, were equal. There were some prior studies that didn't quite show that uh, shorter durations were equal to 12 months, so we've got to sort out the meaning of that. But I think that the conclusion of the Persephone trial is there probably are some early-stage breast cancer patients who do fine with less than 12 months of adjuvant Herceptin, and the heart toxicity is less and other toxicities are less when you give less Herceptin. So look for further uh, evaluations of can we back off on giving a whole year of Herceptin in early stage breast cancer. Now, um, in triple negative breast cancer, um, there's a new agent uh, called uh, MU132 uh, or Sazituzumab govotecan. Um, we've previously seen in triple negative breast cancer that this drug has some exciting activity. What it is is a, an antibody drug conjugate. So there's an antibody that binds to a protein on the surface of the cancer cell called trope 2, and there's a linker to chemotherapy. So this antibody drug conjugate, it delivers chemotherapy directly to the tumor cell where it's internalized and the chemo can be active more specifically at the tumor cell as opposed to having a lot of toxicity in the rest of the body. So we've previously seen uh, uh, even an update as recently as December at our San Antonio meeting that this drug is active in triple negative breast cancer and it has been granted FDA priority review status. So we'll expect an FDA uh, decision in early 2019 in triple negative breast cancer. What was presented at ASCO 2018 in Abstract 1004 was it looks like this drug also probably has activity in hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer, a small trial showing that there were responses and clinical benefit. And so uh, we'll expect the first approval probably in triple negative breast cancer, but we'll look forward to more data uh, across all the classes of breast cancer. And then my very last abstract is looking at PARP inhibitors, which are a class of drugs that now are approved in BRCA1 and 2 associated breast cancer. Uh, we have three drugs, uh, PARP inhibitors, approved in ovarian cancer, and one, Olaparib or Limparza, that was just approved in January of this year in BRCA1 and 2 associated metastatic breast cancer. Um, uh, what we saw at ASCO 2018 in Abstract 508 was one of these PARP inhibitors called talazoparib um, in the preoperative setting in early stage breast cancer. So these were patients who had known BRCA1 mutations. They had early stage breast cancer. They were given talazoparib orally, just one pill a day for six months. Then they went to surgery. And about half of the patients, without getting chemo, just with the PARP inhibitor alone, had no cancer left at the time of surgery. So this was a small study. 
um, and in just 20 patients, but really exciting to think that we could potentially have a very effective therapy, even in early stage breast cancers that are associated with BRCA1 and 2 mutations, and maybe beyond. We're sorting out, do these drugs have activity in other versions of breast cancer um, where we might be able to really back off on chemo. So that was a lot. I wanted to make sure I, I hit all the subtypes of breast cancer and metastatic and early stage. And um, we were really excited about a lot of the presentations in breast cancer and how we're moving away from chemo and toward much more targeted therapies. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you, Dr. Grelo. That was really, uh, really quite the tour de force. Lots of information for everybody to absorb and take in. And you do all know that you can listen to these programs after they occur. Um, you can listen to them on telephone replay or as podcasts on our website, so just to know that. But that was really outstanding. Thank you so much, Dr. Grelo. And our next speaker is Dr. Carolyn Ronowitz. Dr. Ronowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine, Florida International University, and Dr. Runowitz is going to be addressing updates from 2018 ASCO on ovarian cancer. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Thank you for including me in this important teleconference highlighting ASCO 2018. It is really the premier cancer meeting, and all of the oncologists attend uh, to get the latest information. So this is a great uh, opportunity to give this information to our patients. Um, I'm truly honored to be one of the panelists. It's an outstanding group. So in the next 10 minutes or so, I will discuss the highlights of ASCO 2018 as they relate to ovarian cancer. Overall, the results of this meeting emphasized what you heard before, the importance of clinical trials in advancing our knowledge and in defining the effectiveness, the toxicities, and more importantly, the uh, impact it will have on future treatments. Uh, so the role of clinical trials can't be overstated. Uh, in ovarian cancer, as in all of oncology, there was great interest and excitement in immunotherapy. Response to immunotherapy appears to correlate with certain receptors, PD-1 and PD-L1 expression, and these are expressed on the tumor cells. In ovarian cancer, another marker may be a histopathologic subtype called clear cell cancers, and those cancers expressing microsatellite instability. So we may, with those markers, extend patients who would be eligible and would respond to the new immunotherapeutic drugs. Toxicities of these inhibitors, these, these immunotherapy inhibitors, can be clinically challenging. Uh, additionally, there was um, information on histone deacetylase inhibitors being investigated to enhance the immune response and make patients who might not have been responders into responders to immunotherapy. So all very exciting, and immunotherapy has really changed um, the map in uh, cancer and in ovarian cancer. Specifically, the clinical trials that were presented were the Topacio trial, or Keynote 162, which was a phase one trial of a PARP inhibitor, and we just heard from Dr. Grelo about the PARP inhibitors, niraparib, um, and a immunotherapeutic 
uh, drug called pembrolizumab, which is used in um, recurrent ovarian cancer in this trial, both platinum-sensitive and platinum-resistant disease. And activity was demonstrated in tumors with BRCA mutations. So this is exciting. Um, it was only a phase one, two trial. It will now move forward to a phase three trial. Keynote 100 is, again, looking at Pembro in patients with recurrent ovarian cancer and correlating it with the response, with the expression of the PDL1 expression to identify kind of precision therapy, which was the theme of the meeting, taking the markers and precisely using them to figure out which drugs, um, which therapies will work best in the patients. The uh, another completely different immunotherapeutic trial was called DPX Survivec, which is a novel T cell activator against Survivin in combination with oral metronomic cytoxin or cyclophosphamide. And this is a low dose oral continuous administration of cyclophosphamide or cytoxin and combining it with an inhibitor of indolamine. 2,3-D oxygenase, or epicotostat. And that also demonstrated activity in recurrent ovarian cancer and is clearly worth further investigation. So in the immunotherapy, the take-home message is we're seeing activity, we're beginning to figure out which patients will benefit, and then targeting or precisely giving the drugs that work best. Another immunotherapeutic approach is vaccines. Um, and a study out of Europe studied dendritic cell vaccines in combination with chemotherapy as first-line therapy. When they were administered sequentially, they demonstrated an improvement in progression-free survival, which, as you just heard from Dr. Grelo, is the time until the disease recurs. They are also planning on using it as maintenance therapy. One of the things that we have learned in ovarian cancer is that you get a good response initially, and then you want to maintain that response. So drugs like bevacizumab, for example, are being used in a maintenance setting, and this, vac this vaccine is now also going to be tried in the maintenance setting. As in breast cancer, there was excitement again for the PARP inhibitors. The NRG, or the cooperative group um, known more commonly as the gynecologic oncology group, reported on niraparib in heavily treated patients and again demonstrated activity in patients with relapsed ovarian cancer and those that harbor homologous repair deficiency. So once again, bringing home, um, looking at a molecular marker as a predictor of response. The uh, Dana-Farber group reported a longer-term results on treatment with sidarinib and alaparib in platinum-sensitive and platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. And the beauty of that treatment is it's well-tolerated and they're both oral. The... Um, other trials that, that were discussed, um, again, uh, basically revolve around platinum resistance and refractory ovarian cancer. 
Those are the diseases um, that have been given platinum and then no longer respond to platinum. And there was a trial of oral atoposide um, and an oral TK inhibitor, aptinimib, showing activity with manageable toxicities. So we were seeing a little bit more of oral therapies, uh, which for patients is easier than to go and get an intravenous um, therapy. Then uh, Dr. Grelo also talked about the Trojan horse delivery, and that is when you combine um, an antibody um, drug conjugate, and in this particular uh, case, it's with folate receptor, and the folate receptor is on the ovarian cancer cell, so it, it goes to the folate receptor and then releases the drug conjugate, um, and in this case, it's um, called mervituximab, um, which is linked to um, itinicinoid, which is um, a drug that's used in breast cancer as well. This, this drug conjugate was combined with bevacizumab in platinum refractory disease and showed very encouraging preliminary results. Um, and there was a better response in those who had fewer treatments. So we are clearly looking, at, looking forward to seeing a larger trial and um, more data on this exciting antibody drug conjugate. Um, MITO-16 was also um, presented, which was a study designed to examine the addition of bevacizumab to chemotherapy in platinum-sensitive patients um, who recurred after first-line therapy, and it did demonstrate a small improvement in progression-free survival. So although there were no breakthrough new drugs, um, what we saw was the fine-tuning and understanding of how drugs are working and which patients would benefit from which drugs. Um, so I think this is really important in advancing the theme of the meeting and the concept of precision medicine. So overall, I, my take was it was an exciting meeting uh, with a lot of information on um, clinically challenging situations that will be beneficial uh, to our patients. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Monowitz. That was really outstanding as well and, and really very helpful for people to understand then the fine-tuning that um, was, was so important in advancing the state of care for people um, living with ovarian cancer. So thank you so much and all the research going on. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genital urinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center for prostate and urologic diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Weill College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven will be addressing updates from ASCO 2018 on prostate cancer. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sloven. Thank you, Carolyn. It's always a pleasure to update our uh, listeners to new and exciting things that come out of the ASCO meetings. I'd like very 
quickly to go over three very new areas uh, that came out of the ASCO meetings. One has to do with novel imaging. The second is relevant to an area called biomarker research. And the third has to do with a novel group of molecules, uh, drugs that have now come into uh, care of patients with prostate cancer calling, called PARP inhibitors. Prostate cancer is a very biologically and clinically a very heterogeneous disease, and uh, imaging that's used for prostate cancer has always been confined to bone and CAT scans. Over the last 20 years, we saw the evolution of an unusual group of patients, and those were the patients who had either surgery or radiation and had as their only indication that their disease had come back and was active was the return of the PSA. Conventional bone and CAT scans have been, over the years, extremely helpful, but over the last uh, probably three to five years, molecular imaging has become an extremely interesting approach to find out whether or not you can detect occult or hidden disease with very good sensitivity and specificity. Many of you have already heard and likely have undergone imaging tests that included a PET scan, which is a positron emission tomography. It actually is a means of doing imaging over real time and taking advantage of the metabolism of cancer cells in the body. Since then, there have been improvements in what we call tracers. These are molecules that help detect occult cancer cells or hidden cancer cells based on either certain markers on their surface or certain metabolic products. So what's been very uh, interesting is that there have been a, two approved PET imaging studies, uh, or excuse me, modalities. One is called Axumin, A-X-U-M-I-N, uh, or flucyclovine, and another one is called choline, C-H-O-L-I-N-E. Both of these have been used and are FDA approved in patients with prostate cancer, but there are different nuances, and they're not always uh, reimbursable by insurance companies. But the idea behind them is to see if a patient whose PSA continues to rise could have disease that could not be seen on conventional imaging. What's the implication? Well, the implication is for those patients with biochemical relapse, we're looking for disease that may not be amenable to treatment, for example, with salvage radiation, but may be reflective of more distant disease for which other drugs may be appropriate. Not only that, but it also gives you the opportunity to monitor the patient in some situations and determine whether or not anything is really clinically relevant in terms of what's needed to treat the patient. More recently, the Gallium 68 scan, and this is a scan that's very similar to Axumin and choline uh, in that it is a PET scan, but the tracer that's used is a, what we call a gamma emitter, a radioactive compound that is bound or coupled to a marker that's known to be on prostate cancer cells called prostate-specific membrane antigen, or PSMA. So the literature is really ripe with uh, imaging studies that are trying to maximize the ability to detect disease using this particular radiopharmaceutical marker. So at the ASCO meeting, another presentation, and there have been many, 
uh, was based on a much larger study. And what they, uh, the group did was to look at patients who had a rising PSA or a biochemical relapse after surgery and or radiation. Their question was, was there really a concordance between that which was seen on the imaging test with the gallium PSNA and what could be detected by biopsying that same site? As many as you know, very often we can have what we call false positives. Something lights up, and we're all terrified that this is recurrent disease, and then when we try to biopsy it and obtain tissue, we find that the tissue is completely negative and it's inflamed, but no evidence of cancer. So this was a important study in that it, they were trying to use this imaging modality to guide what we call focal salvage therapy. Should somebody receive radiation after the fact or should they receive something else? And to be very terse, uh, what it boiled down to is that this type of imaging had what we called a positive predictive value that was greater than 85%. And what that meant is that if you look at all positives, they were really truly positive. And so this is a very high uh, indication that what you're detecting is real. They actually found that in patients who had a PSA that was less than decimal 0.5, about 41% of the patients had positive scans that were biopsy proven to be indicative of recurrent disease. For patients who had a PSA between 0.5 and less than 1, so between essentially 0.5 to 0.9, 60% positivity. And subsequently, if the PSA was between 1 but less than 2, greater than 85, and 99% if your PSA was uh, greater than 5. So the relevance of this is that this is one in a series of studies that is providing data that will ultimately go to the FDA to support the use of this imaging modality to assist, to assist doctors in determining how to best treat their, their patients. And so it'll, it'll hopefully help the patient know whether or not there is disease that needs to be treated either with radiation or perhaps other appropriate therapies. So this is one of these stay tuned and we'll hopefully have more information over time, but it's a very rich area of endeavor. The second is biomarkers. Now, many of you may have heard me previously talk about biomarkers and biomarkers are nothing more than some means of detecting a protein or a molecule or something else that might be indicative of how a patient either responds to a treatment or how the disease outcome may change with a drug. They're called either prognostic biomarkers that provides information about a patient's overall cancer outcome or predictive biomarkers that talk about the effect of a therapeutic option. So in a study from Duke, which was called the Prophecy Trial, and this was really not a trial of treatment per se, but was uh, indicative of looking at a marker known as ARV7. AR stands for androgen receptor. That's the site to which the male hormone testosterone would bind to keep the disease active. But it's also the site where there can become resistance to treatment, and it's usually known as ARV7 or androgen receptor variant 7, a splice variant or an abnormality or a mutation in the androgen receptor that causes people to become resistant to treatment. 
it has been unclear whether this particular marker can be particular. Uh, predictive of the clinical effectiveness in men who have castration-resistant prostate cancer who are receiving either one of two different androgen receptor signaling drugs, abiraterone, or Zytiga as we know it, or enzalutamide, which goes by the name of Extandi. So this was a multi-center trial of 118 men, and what they did is look at what we call liquid biopsies, and that was constituted by what we call circulating tumor cells or tumor cells that are floating around, and they're isolated through a certain technology. What they determined was that if there were these mutations uh, on the circulating tumor cells, it showed that those people who had this marker uh, also had other genomic changes. What we're talking about is other mutations were associated with these this ARV7 uh, problem, and as such, may make patients a little less susceptible to some of these drugs. In many instances, it had been observed that if you had this mutation, you may not respond as well to abiraterone as if you, as opposed to if you didn't have this. So it does have clinical implications. We are really not using this in real time diagnostically to make decisions whether or not to give a patient enzalutamide or abiraterone, but it's one in a series of studies that's helping us try to determine how do we strategize how to treat patients with specific drugs. Is there some mechanism or some marker, or as we call it, a biomarker, that will tell us whether we're on the right track? Now, please keep in mind, just like imaging, none of these biomarkers are necessarily going to be indicative of the disease in every person. So as you know, radiology tests very often can have false positives. Biomarkers can be the same. And there's, there's no real absolute way of knowing, will this really prognosticate that you won't be able to respond to the drug. And I can tell you there are people who do have this variant and they do respond, but it's still building a series of studies that will help us understand how do we really treat patients maximally. The final comment that I have uh, to take away from our ASCO meeting is that many of you know about the PARP inhibitors. These are a series of drugs that have been fast-tracked or en route to being approved in patients who have castration-resistant prostate cancer who happen to have genomic abnormalities. And these are patients who have the BRCA or BRCA mutation, uh, patients who we found that they have uh, DNA mutations that uh, allow the cancer cell to continue to grow, and the cell itself uh, repairs itself in so many ways. What these drugs do is prevent the cell from repairing its own DNA and keep living. So the group in uh, at the Royal Marsden actually did a very quick study, and it's still ongoing, and looking at the combination of a PARP inhibitor with an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor, which is abiraterone or Zytiga. And through a variety of uh, correlative studies, meaning just checking blood tests and doing a variety of different uh, approaches, they actually are suggesting that there may be a role for using this combination to treat patients who have castration-resistant prostate cancer. 
The interesting thing about this is that they, number one, found that whether or not you had this genomic mutation, BRCA, made no difference. It looks as though those people, whether they had this mutation or not, could derive benefit. And the second is that they seem to indicate that there may be an improvement uh, in the patient's ability to go forward with additional drugs over time. Very exciting areas of endeavor. We are continuing to uh, really try to change practice, but right now a lot of what we're seeing is really practice elucidating and therefore will take a little bit of time to be implemented in patient care. Thank you for the opportunity for having me share this with you. Back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. That was really outstanding and lots of information for everybody um, with prostate cancer wanting to know more about it, so thank you so much. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Fabio Ilmoto. Um, Dr. Ilmoto is uh, Assistant Professor of Neurology, Deputy Director, Division of Neuro-Oncology, Department of Neurology, Columbia University Irving Medical Center. And Dr. Emoto will be providing updates from AFCO 2018 on brain cancers. And now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Emoto. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for inviting me and for organizing such a wonderful uh, cancer care teleconference. So uh, this year at ASCO, 2018, there were almost 200 uh, oral and poster presentations related to uh, brain tumors. And over the next 10 minutes or so, I'll go through a few of the highlights, uh, including uh, trials with vaccines, um, immune checkpoint blockers, and also uh, uh, a drug called an antibody drug conjugate that was already um, uh, discussed uh, briefly before. So, as we know, uh, the most common primary brain tumor are, is a glioblastoma, and uh, the standard of care for glioblastomas uh, have been, for the last uh, almost 15 years, uh, surgery followed by radiation and this chemotherapy called timozolomide or timodar. But there is no question that uh, the standard of care for newly diagnosed glioblastoma is suboptimal in terms uh, of the uh, efficacy. So a few of these studies uh, are trying to add uh, something else to the initial treatment of a glioblastoma. So the group from Heidelberg University in Germany presented a very interesting new vaccine for uh, for glioblastoma patients. So this is the first in human trial of a, a truly personalized peptide vaccine. So these patients um, have their tumor removed, and this is uh, studied through a very in-depth DNA sequencing and uh, a very um, robust computational analysis to define what are the most important antigens that could be targeted for each single patient. And then these peptide vaccines were manufactured for each uh, peptide and for each patient. And each patient received on average from two to seven peptides based on this analysis of uh, each patient's tumor. And this is very important because uh, we know that glioblastomas are highly heterogeneous meaning that although 
under the standard pathology, they can look very similar uh, with the uh, glioblastoma cells, the uh, increased vasculature of the tumor, or also necrosis, which is you know dead tumor cells because these tumors grow so fast. We know that you know each patient's tumor is very different, and also. Even in one single patient, not every single glioblastoma cell is the same. So this very uh, detailed uh, analysis of the tumor uh, was able to then um, um, produce this very specific peptide vaccine. So these patients then received the standard, you know, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy with chemozolomide, and then received these injections of these peptide vaccines. And this was um, a, a first in human trial, so the main focus was to look at the safety. And definitely, there was no uh, significant side effects. Uh, and also, these uh, investigators were able to show that the immune system of each patient was able to mount a response against these uh, peptides that are, you know, present on uh, on each individual tumor. Uh, they have some initial uh, data on the efficacy that looks very promising, and this is moving forward to uh, much larger studies uh, at this point. There was an also um, a different uh, study uh, also using a peptide vaccine against a very specific mutation targeting the gene IDH1. So this uh, gene has, is mutated in only about 5% of the glioblastomas, but uh, much more frequently in either grade three or grade two uh, gliomas. Uh, so these are the lower grade or the anaplastic grade uh, gliomas. And what these patients received was a very uh, specific peptide vaccine uh, against this mutation called uh, IDH1 R132H mutation. And these patients also underwent surgery and then a combination of you know, radiation and timozolomide. And after that, these vaccines were started. And again, uh, this group was able to show that the immune system did respond and mount uh, an immune response against this peptide. And also, uh, there was some uh, suggestions that some patients had a, a shrinkage of the tumor and also very early but uh, very promising data that this could potentially be added uh, to standard treatment. So larger studies uh, are also uh, planned, including with combinations of, uh, with uh, immune checkpoint blocker, uh, PDL1 inhibitor called Avelumab. So, um, so these were the two um, uh, different vaccines that were presented that are being added to the standard uh, radiation and timozolomide for newly diagnosed brain tumors. There was also very interesting data on um, one of the uh, widely used PD-1 inhibitors called pembrolizumab or Keytruda, uh, and this has been approved for many different indications including melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, Hodgkin's disease, among many others. And um, 
this study from uh, David Reardon uh, from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute uh, randomized patients now with recurrent glioblastoma. So this was not a first-line treatment. These were patients who already had received radiation and timozolomide. And patients then went on either pembrolizumab alone or Keytruda alone or pembrolizumab with uh, bevacizumab, which is Avastin, which is uh, one of the few FDA-approved uh, medications for recurrent glioblastomas. And it's still uh, quite early to tell what will be the role of you know, PD-1 inhibitors in general, but there are always you know, a few patients that do respond and do stay uh, disease-controlled uh, for a much longer period. The studies with uh, different PD-1 inhibitors and pd one inhibitors are still ongoing in different phases of the disease, both for newly diagnosed uh, glioblastomas, but also uh, for recurrent glioblastomas. So uh, the follow-up study for this study with uh, pembrolizumab with or without uh, bevacizumab or Keytruda with or without Avastin is uh, another study um, uh, that adds also uh, re-radiation to this recurrent glioblastoma. So this study is being opened right now. It's a, a larger study that patients will undergo either re-radiation, pembrolizumab, re-radiation, pembrolizumab, and bevacizumab, or for patients who have already received bevacizumab but the tumor continues to grow, they can continue on bevacizumab and then re-radiation and pembrolizumab will be added. And um, there is some you know, early data that was also presented that this combination of uh, radiation with a PD-1 inhibitor in glioblastomas can be more effective um, uh, because the radiation by itself can also promote a stronger response from the immune system. Finally, uh, uh, there was a very large phase three study with a drug called ABT414, uh, which uh, is an antibody drug conjugate. So the antibody is against this protein called EGFR, or epidermal growth factor receptor. And this antibody is linked to uh, chemotherapy or a toxin. So um, patients who had a recurrent glioblastoma with uh, expression of this EGFR or epidermal growth factor receptor were then uh, entered in this study with this infusion of the antibody drug conjugate ABT414. Uh, another group of patients, uh, which was the control group, uh, got only the standard chemotherapy drugs, either chemozolomide or lomustine. And another group got the combination of both the standard chemotherapy, uh, chemozolomide, with uh, the new uh, antibody drug conjugate called ABT414. So these were for only patients, as I said, with recurrent glioblastomas who had high expression of the EGFR. And the results that were shown is that there was definitely a very uh, strong signal that the patients who got the combination of both the ABT414 and the timozolomide did better. Uh, this drug is now in, in 
in a different setting for newly diagnosed glioblastomas. And this uh, very large international study has just completed accrual a few months ago, and we'll hopefully very soon know the results um, uh, of this study. Uh, finally, I want to touch uh, based on uh, one of the targeted therapies that uh, all of us working in brain tumors are, is also uh, we're also very excited, and these are the uh, small molecule inhibitors against IDH1 or IDH2. So again, these are um, mutations that happens in only about 5% of the primary glioblastomas, but are, are much more frequent in low-grade or grade 2 gliomas, uh, where it happens in about 70% of uh, such tumors, or in oligodendrogliomas, which happens in about uh, in 100% of those patients, or also anaplastic astrocytomas. So these drugs... Um, um, are being tested in, in gliomas that, of course, harbor this mutation uh, uh, of IDH1 or 2. And there was a, a very interesting presentation of this agent uh, that just completed phase 1 called AG881. And this was given for patients uh, with gliomas with these mutations uh, in the IDH1 or IDH2. And there was a significant uh, number of patients who have had a stabilization of the tumor, some for a very long period. So we're very excited to see how such drugs, not only AG881, but all other IDH inhibitors will eventually uh, help patients with gliomas with such mutations. Okay, thank you very much for listening. It was a pleasure to participate on this conference call. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Emoto. That was really outstanding and very informative um, for many of our patients on the call who are living with uh, brain cancer, with glioblastoma, very informative, a lot of options for people to go back and speak to their treating healthcare team. So thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and um, our next speaker um, is going to be addressing oral head and neck cancer, uh, Dr. Christoph Misikowicz. Dr. Misikowicz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Assistant Professor Otolaryngology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Misikowicz is going to be addressing oral head and neck cancer. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Misikowicz. Uh, hello, uh, good afternoon. So I'm calling from New York, so it's an afternoon. It's an absolute pleasure to be in the panel of uh, such extensive uh, physicians, uh, accomplished and excellent speakers, and I would like to thank you, the organizers, uh, for obviously putting this meeting together and all the listeners that are listening to us and following us on uh uh, on this event. So I'm going to be discussing head and neck cancer. I want to divide my discussion on two topics. The first one is going to be locally advanced squamous carcinoma of head and neck, and the second is going to be recurrent metastatic. Uh, but before I'm going to discuss those two topics, I'm going to just briefly um, uh, tell you about different treatment strategies uh, we have in very general kind of terms. 
Um, so we do, because it's going to be important as I'm going to be discussing them. So one of them is radiation. So uh, radiation, obviously, is the process of kind of burning the cancer, eliminating the cancer using the, the radiation beam. The second one is a chemotherapy. Uh, I like to tell my patients chemotherapy is sort of like a poison. It's like a poison to poison the cancer without poisoning the patient. And obviously, many times, unfortunately, comes with the larger number of side effects. The next one is targeted therapy. Targeted therapy, in theory, is supposed to target the cancer and sparing the healthy tissue from being exposed to side effects. And the last one that also was discussed extensively uh, with the previous speakers, obviously, is immunotherapy. This is something kind of storm into our offices, and we use, a, use it extensively, and obviously we're trying to implement this new strategy in our treatment. In immunotherapy, what is different uh, uh, basically, what happens, uh, cancer is kind of in, invisible to our own body. Our Im own immune system cannot see the cancer as foreign as something that is dangerous to our body. So that's why our body does nothing. And obviously, our job with immunotherapy is kind of make this cancer visible to our own body uh, by making this visible and eventually turning up your immune system. So we're kind of using your own body to fight with the cancer. Um, so as I'm going to now kind of focus on those two topics that I want to discuss. So the first one is locally advanced squamous cell carcinoma of head and neck. So having those strategies in mind, so right now we treat patients with uh, head and neck cancer with chemotherapy and radiation given together. And this is something that was um, done for many, many years. So now the question was uh, during this ASCO, if we can add immunotherapy to this uh, combination, uh, or eventually we can replace some of those treatment modalities and just replace it. And it's based on the rationale that Radiation, uh, to some extent, can damage the cancer, and by damaging the cancer, it can m release those antigens, something that is relatively foreign to our body, and make the cancer visible to our body so immune system can kind of fight with this. So it's, it's called priming and activation of our immune system. So having this in mind, there are several uh, trials, obviously, to asking a few questions. So the one question is, if this is something that is doable, meaning if this is something that can be done and it's not going to be significantly toxic for the patient. And the second question is, is it going to be better than uh, the current chemotherapy and radiation? So there are several uh, abstracts presented at ASCO kind of trying to ask this question. So one of them was of giving chemotherapy, and what they did, they added immunotherapy to chemotherapy. Uh, the only thing that we're able to answer if this is something that's going to be relatively minimally toxic and it's feasible, and the answer is yes. So the answer is we can. Obviously, only in a phase of a clinical trial, it cannot be done outside of the clinical trial. Yes, it seems that it's safe to add uh, immunotherapy to, to the Canon standard. The other uh, abstract was asking a question for patients because some of them, they're not really eligible for the chemotherapy. For, for various reasons, sometimes we cannot give chemotherapy. So the question was, can we add pembrolizumab or we can use the current standard, which is a cetuximab as a targeted therapy, can be added to the radiation, and which one is better? So there was a Gordex study that was asking this question, and what we know as of this moment, we only know that it seems that immunotherapy is less toxic, so it's much better tolerated than cetuximab. If it's going to be better, if it's going to be giving us better results, we don't know this, yes, and this is something that obviously has to be studied. The next abstract was asking a question, can we 
add, because I mentioned that the um, immunotherapy can be added to chemotherapy and radiation, can immunotherapy can be added to targeted therapy and radiation? And that was the study with avalolumab and cetuximab and radiation. And compared to the standard of care, this is another Gordex study. And it seems that it can because it, it looks like it doesn't give us any more side effects. So as you see, and there are two other, two other studies kind of asking similar questions. So in general, the first question that I was uh, discussing, is it something that's doable? If this is something that can be done and the answer seems to be yes. Is it something better? Are we going to have any benefit of adding immunotherapy or immunotherapy replacing current chemotherapy? Uh, we don't know. This is something that has to be studied. And actually, I would encourage our patients, our listeners, to look for those clinical trials because we cannot do it without you. Uh, and there are several benefits for, for everybody, for patients. You can be part of the amazing journey. It's going to be, you're going to be helping us. You're going to be helping other patients. You're going to be helping the science. And you can benefit uh, from this treatment because you can be the, one of the first ones that's going to kind of have the benefit of this very innovative and very promising treatment. And this is something that cannot be offered outside of the clinical trial. So I would strongly encourage you to ask your physician about clinical trials that may be available around you. The second question that was asked during the ASCO is about timing of the immunotherapy. So you can imagine that as of now, we're treating patients with chemotherapy and radiation, and we're asking when this immunotherapy should be given. Should it be given before the chemotherapy radiation, during the chemotherapy radiation, or after? And this is the matter of the extensive investigation, and obviously there are some clinical trials now ongoing, and we don't know the answer. We have some information from the lung cancer, and we know that for lung cancer patients that are treated for, with chemotherapy and radiation and were randomized to nothing versus immunotherapy, the ones that received immunotherapy had significantly, significantly better outcome. So obviously the question is if this is something that we're going to see in head and neck. And again, there are a number of clinical trials that they're testing this idea. So what they many times what they do, they give chemotherapy and radiation, and subsequently, for for the next six to to twelve months, they're receiving additional immunotherapy that many times is minimally toxic to just kind of make sure that this cancer will not come back and it's going to give you the better result. Another thing that I want to discuss is the HPV positivity. So within the head and neck cancer patients, we have kind of two subgroups of the patients. We have the ones that are HPV negative, and many times are the smokers or heavy smokers. And then obviously we have patients that are HPV positive, and HPV is a human papillomavirus. And many times those patients are either never smokers, light smokers, or they can be heavy smokers. So we know that HPV positivity kind of gives you the better outcome. And at the same time, we know that within this group, patients that have minimal smoking history, usually less than 20 or 10-pack year smoking history, or they never smoke, those are the patients that have absolutely amazing outcome. So the question now is, if the current treatment that we have, maybe it's a little bit too strong. There are many clinical trials testing the idea of de-escalation the treatment, meaning maybe we can give you less treatment and kind of maintain excellent results but expose you to less toxicity because we know that 
it's not as much important with the acute toxicity, something that you're going to develop as you're going to receive the treatment, because this is something that you're going to have, and eventually all those symptoms are going to disappear. But we're really concerned about chronic toxicity, something that you're going to be left for the rest of your life. And we know that the high dose of chemotherapy and radiation can left you with xerostomia, which is a dryness of the mouth. It can lead to dental problems. It can lead to difficulty swallowing. It can lead to difficulty speaking, and etc. And the second one is that as we're treating the cancer in head and neck, we can make those muscles that are pushing the foot down, they, they can be a little bit hard. We call it the fibrosis. So it can be hard for those patients to swallow. And what we do know, it's dose dependent. Those toxicities are dose dependent, meaning more radiation you're going to get, the higher the chance that you're going to develop those. So those de-escalation studies, what they're testing, can we give you less? So one is for patients they undergo surgery, many times they need, they need subsequent treatment. So there are several trials that after the surgery, and if you consider low-risk patient that is determined by the oncologist, surgeon, and the pathologist, maybe you don't need anything. Normally, we give radiation to those patients. For intermediate-risk patients, you may get the lower dose of the radiation that's going to give you less side effects rather than the high dose. And for the high-risk patients, we're going to give you a lower dose of chemotherapy and radiation. But again, all those strategies cannot be given outside of the clinical trial because otherwise it would be considered malpractice. So the only chance for you to get less treatment uh, is obviously participation in the clinical trial. And there is the other group of the patients in head and neck and HPV positive that they're not resectable. And for those patients, what we do, we either give them induction chemotherapy, which is chemotherapy only to shrink the cancer, that is followed by a lower dose of the chemotherapy and radiation. And the other strategy is just to give the chemotherapy and radiation, but again in the lower dose, all of them leading to less toxicity. And this is something that obviously we want to study. And this is something that was heavily discussed at, uh, at the ASCO meeting. And again, we as a medical community, we cannot offer you the lower dose of radiation or lower dose of treatment because we would be committing malpractice unless you're going to be on the clinical trial. Then I want to move to recurrent and metastatic squamous cell carcinoma of head and neck. So currently what's happening in the first-line settings for patients that were just diagnosed with metastatic cancer, the standard of care is chemotherapy. And actually, as of now, there are some studies that were not presented at ASCO, uh, but probably they're going to be presented pretty soon. They're testing if maybe we can use immunotherapy in those settings, and maybe immunotherapy will replace uh, current chemotherapy, and obviously we don't have the answer. The only actually uh, thing that we have, we have the early press release from Merck that probably immunotherapy is better than current chemotherapy. But as of now, we cannot recommend immunotherapy in the first-line settings. So this is something that obviously we have to wait. In second-line settings, we can recommend chemotherapy and immunotherapy, and the immunotherapy is actually better than chemotherapy. So what was discussed at ASCO, so we have those two strategies. We have chemotherapy and we have immunotherapy. And now the question is, what should be the sequence? Should we, should we be giving chemotherapy followed by immunotherapy or immunotherapy by chemotherapy? And what was really studied, what's going to be the best option? We have some information from lung cancer because in oncology, many times we're kind of borrowing the information from the other cancer, even though 
each cancer has kind of a different characteristic. It's a different biology, so they're completely different. But sometimes we're trying to borrow, to borrow some ideas. So actually in lung cancer, we know that if patients, they receive immunotherapy first and it's followed by chemotherapy, this chemotherapy works better. And we don't know exactly why. Is it something that immunotherapy does to the cancer uh, and changes the environment so chemotherapy works better? We don't know. Is it something that the immunotherapy does and it's kind of the leftover, this, this response from immunotherapy kind of stays and is just helping? We don't know as well. So this is something that we studied and obviously this is something that we have to learn and we cannot do it without your participation. The another topic in recurrent metastatic uh, settings I want to discuss, combination. So as I discussed at the beginning, we have chemotherapy, we have targeted therapy, and we have immunotherapy. And now the question is how we can combine those treatments to make them work better. So there were some promising results reported by uh, Isai and uh, Morek from the study of combining targeted therapy and drug called lenvatinib. This is the pill that is approved in thyroid cancer and liver cancer, and it was combined with immunotherapy. And efficacy, the, um, it's very promising. The only question that we have, because it, it kind of came with a little bit increased toxicity, so obviously now the question is for the investigators and for the companies, can this increased toxicity can be justified by obviously this amazing efficacy? And this is something that probably is going to be subsequently studied uh, and uh, uh, subsequent studies. So obviously, again, I would encourage you to participate. Uh, and the last thing that I want to discuss is side effects. So we know historically there were some drugs that were used, for example, lung cancer, if you develop certain side effects, it was good. And obviously, uh, I don't want to minimize that it's comforted with side effects, but what we kind of knew as physicians, that if you develop the side effect, we know that the drug's going to work. So what we're learning from immunotherapy, there are some side effects that are good. Good in a sense, it tells us that obviously you're going to have the better outcome. So for example, we know that vitiligo, which is a discoloration of your skin, it's kind of the white patches that patients develop, and rash, and it was observed in melanoma patients treated with immunotherapy, those patients, they live longer. So meaning that uh, the immunotherapy worked better for those patients. In lung cancer, we observed that the thyroid dysfunction leads to the better outcome. And in head and neck, we're kind of trying to make the same observation. What was reported that immune-related side effects, they can produce better outcome. So obviously, we're happy about this. But something that was discussed just before about the biomarkers, this observation is made as we're treating the patient, meaning the decision was already made that we give him immunotherapy rather than any other treatment, and we're observing during the treatment that you're developing this side effect that can may lead to the better outcome. But something that we, we do really need, it's something that's going to tell you if you should or shouldn't be on immunotherapy. Something's going to tell us, I mean, or help us with the patient selection, and obviously we need the bi those biomarkers. And this was another aspect that was also studied at ASCA, and this is something that we have to learn. So I just want to conclude that you heard me and other speakers. We're doing those amazing things. We're trying to really move science forward. But we cannot do it without you. We cannot do it without the patients and investigators, but mainly without you. So uh, if you have an access to clinical trials, or if not, please ask. Because not only you can help yourself, you can have the access to cutting-edge treatment, something that normally we cannot offer. You can benefit from this. You're going to be also helping others. 
you can be part of the future standard of care. You can kind of help us. You can help us to treat other patients. And I think it's an amazing feeling. So with this, I just want to thank the, the committee. I want to thank other speakers. And I want to thank our listeners to, uh, to be part of this amazing uh, event. Thank you so much, Dr. Misikowitz. That was really outstanding and so informative and really and really also just really an appeal for people to participate in the trials because that's indeed what is reported at ASCO, all the research that's being done, and all of you have really taken credit for that and participating in it. And our, our next speaker and our last speaker is a Dr. Priscilla Miriam. She is physician in medical oncology, sarcoma and bone cancer treatment center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She's instructor in medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Miriam is going to present really uh, updates from ASCO 2018 on sarcoma. And then she will, because she's been on this call the entire time, will actually give a bit of a summation of the call as well. So it's really my great pleasure to introduce and to bring on uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Miriam. Uh, thank you, Dr. Messner. It's an honor to be with you and the other speakers today to review some of the highlights from the sarcoma sessions at this year's ASCO annual meeting. Some of the most interesting information we learned this year was from studies evaluating medications that are already FDA approved but have not been rigorously studied yet for potential benefit in sarcoma. The first study I'll discuss was for individuals with a condition called desmoid fibromatosis. This is not technically a cancer, but it is a benign tumor that when it grows can cause major problems. People with these tumors are frequently treated in sarcoma centers, and novel approaches to controlling these tumors are important to study. Dr. Myrnal Gounder presented a phase three trial of the oral medication serafinib. Serafinib belongs to a class of medications called tyrosine kinase inhibitors. These medications are designed to block some of the signals in cancer cells that tell the cells to grow. Serafinib is approved by the FDA for liver cancer, kidney cancer, and thyroid cancer. In this study of serafinib in people with desmoid fibromatosis, participants were required to have had enlarging desmoid tumors or desmoid tumors that were causing symptoms. Patients were randomly assigned to either take serafinib or to take placebo. Individuals who were assigned initially to take placebo were able to start receiving serafinib if their desmoid tumor worsened while on study. The results showed that people who took serafinib had important shrinkage of their desmoid tumors and that their desmoid tumors were controlled for longer than what was seen in people who took placebo. A very interesting finding in the study, however, was that a significant number of people taking placebo only also had important shrinkage of their desmoid, even though they were not taking an active medication. This supports prior reports that in some individuals, desmoid tumors may start to shrink on their own, and that observing the behavior of a desmoid tumor prior to deciding to start an active medication may be a good option for some people to discuss with their, with their physician. Another study that showed encouraging results with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor was for people with metastatic osteosarcoma whose cancer was growing. This study used the oral medication regorafenib. Regorafenib, like serafinib, is thought to work by blocking signals in a cancer cell that tells that cell to grow. Regorafenib is approved by the FDA for colon cancer, liver cancer, and a type of sarcoma called gastrointestinal stromal tumor. In this phase two study, 
Patients with osteosarcoma were randomly assigned to receive either regorafenib or placebo. As in the other study that I described, people in the group who were given placebo initially were able to start taking regorafenib if their osteosarcoma grew during the study. The results were encouraging because regorafenib seemed to control the uh, growth of osteosarcoma as compared to the growth that was seen when people were taking placebo. Regorafenib was also studied in liposarcoma, one of the, most, uh, one of the more common types of sarcoma. Understanding what role tyrosine kinase inhibitors like regorafenib may play in the treatment of liposarcoma is important because in prior studies of another tyrosine kinase inhibitor, it was unclear whether liposarcomas might benefit from this type of medication. In this phase two study presented by Dr. Richard Rydell, people with liposarcoma were assigned randomly to receive either regorafenib or placebo. Just like in the other studies I described, patients with liposarcoma assigned to take placebo were able to start taking regorafenib if their liposarcoma grew during the study. Unlike the two prior studies I've discussed, people taking regorafenib did not appear to have less tumor growth when compared to the tumor growth seen in people taking placebo. This is an important result to discuss because the results from this study uh, along with other studies, suggests that for people with liposarcoma, tyrosine kinase inhibitors might not be the best treatment choice based on what we know right now. There were some studies as well of investigational medications that showed promising results. Dr. Andrew Wagner discussed early results from a phase one study of an oral medication called PLX9486 in people with gastrointestinal stromal tumor whose tumors had previously grown while treated with other medications. In this study, some participants took PLX9486 alone, and other people were assigned to take PLX9486 along with another medication to treat gastrointestinal stromal tumor. Overall, PLX9486 was tolerated well, and there was promising activity seen in the study against gastrointestinal stromal tumor, though the study was not designed primarily to study response rates. Additionally, at ASCO, we heard the results of a phase two study of an investigational medication called lurbinectidin in people with Ewing sarcoma whose cancer has returned after they've already been treated with standard medications. Encouraging cancer control was seen among some of the participants in this study, and the treatment was tolerated well. Immunotherapy continues to be a topic of interest in the sarcoma community, as, as you've heard in other uh, cancer subtypes as well. And two studies of note were discussed at this year's ASCO. The first study was conducted in Europe in patients with several rare subtypes of sarcoma. Some of the subtypes included were clear cell sarcoma, alveolar soft part sarcoma, angiosarcoma, synovial sarcoma, and undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. Participants in this phase one, phase two study received an oral medication called sunitinib that is designed to have activity against factors involved in the growth of tumor blood vessels. Participants also received the immunotherapy drug nivolumab. The study investigators reported promising activity against these rare subtypes in some of the study participants. Dr. Breland Wilkie presented another study that used a combination of an oral medication that acts against tumor blood, blood vessel growth called exitinib and an immunotherapy drug pembrolizumab. People with alveolar soft part sarcoma, undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma, Lyomyosarcoma and other sarcoma subtypes participated in this study. As has been seen in other immunotherapy trials in patients with alveolar soft part sarcoma, the study showed promising results among some participants. This was especially true among individuals with alveolar soft part sarcoma. 
The information reported for sarcoma patients at ASCO 2018 was important in helping us understand new ways we may be able to help people with sarcoma with already approved medications. ASCO 2018 also showed us the importance of continuing to innovate with investigational medications and new medication combinations, such as combinations including immunotherapy approaches. In summary, today we have heard the different specialists describe how we try to improve care for people with cancer through different types of clinical trials and also different classes of medications. Each ASCO annual meeting makes it clear that the future of cancer care is in learning what makes each person's cancer unique and how to fine-tune our treatment approaches. This can even mean that for some individuals, they may be able to decrease the amount of treatment needed, such as being able to avoid chemotherapy in certain types of cancers, as we learned from this year's ASCO. The promise of being able to understand what makes a cancer unique and how to use precise types of treatments for that unique cancer is truly exciting and is why we are so invigorated each year by the ASCO annual meeting. I'd like to thank you for participating in this discussion of the highlights from ASCO 2018. I hope what we've talked about today has been inspiring, and I hope that it will help you open discussions with your treating team about what approaches might be right for you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Miriam. That was really outstanding and really such a wonderful wrap-up of the call today as well in terms of just the major themes addressed. So we cannot thank you enough for that. Um, thank you. And um, I just want to conclude the call by saying a few words in terms of many of you have questions you may wish to ask, and also many of you may need resources. So I do want to review with you the services you can access from Cancer Care, which are free. So Cancer Care has a staff of oncology social workers and a number of programs and services that could be helpful to you. We do offer um, actually financial and um, help with both financial help and practical assistance. So we're a good place to call. Our uh, number is 1-800-813-4673. And for all of you who prefer to go to our website, you can visit www.cancercare.org. Also, for those of you who might like to have an oncology social worker to talk to about some of your concerns or questions, you can actually, um, again, contact us or visit our website. We offer individual counseling, um, and we do that on the telephone. Um, uh, and we also offer um, a telephone support groups and online support groups. We actually have over 150 online support groups on many different areas, both on specific types of cancers for caregivers, for young adults. Um, we also have a program that specifically helps children and teens affected by cancer themselves or in their family. So it could have a parent or uncle or aunt or grandparent with cancer as well. Um, and um, so we have a range of services, and we definitely would encourage you to take advantage of those services. We are also going to be launching a program which will help people who have um, a family pet uh, that they particularly love, but they, because of their treatments, they have difficulty with caring for their pet, and so we'll be mentioning those, those are services that we'll be stay tuned for. And uh, also, we do have many more workshops. So I want to mention to you that we do have a part two of this workshop, and part two is occurring um, next week on Tuesday, August 28th, same time, and it will be covering a different cancers. Many of you have signed up for part two, and I encourage you, if you haven't, to do so. Um, again, because I think there's a great deal of um, themes that run through all of these presentations that we will be sure to address on part two as well. 
Um, also, um, we also do have publications, and there will be a publication based on the program, on this ASCO series, the two-part series, and it usually takes a few months for that publication to come out, and all of you will be receiving that publication when it does come out. It will also be available on our website as well, and we do have a very active and robust publication um, site, and you can get all of our publications, fact sheets, booklets from our website or order them as well. So with that all being said, and of course we have many more workshops being planned, and so you can visit um, our uh, website that promotes those programs um, at um, www.cancercare.org backslash connect, and also you can listen to our podcast as well at www.cancercare.org backslash podcast. And after today's program, you'll be getting an evaluation that has all the resources that we've mentioned during today's program so that you'll be able to access all those services um, as well um, on, um, you know, on that you may need going forward. So again, I want to thank you very much for your participation today. I would like you to complete the evaluations when you get them, and you'll also see a host of resources that you'll be able to access. And I do want to mention one other thing. We do have, we've just launched on our website um, a cancer care um, meditation app, and many of you find that very helpful in terms of just relaxing, and so um, we will be sending information about that also in the evaluation form, and for those of you who've registered um, uh, by phone or mail, a paper packet, we'll be sending you also um, information about that as well, so that might be something many of you might like to take advantage of. Again, I want to thank you all for being on this call today, an amazing group of people, and um, we look forward to being on next week's program as well. Thank you all, and have a fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.